When I was six years old, I asked for a toy for Christmas that I thought if I got that toy, I would be happy for the rest of my life. It was the greatest toy. It was the hot toy for kids, for, for little boys at, at six years old. And, you know, there's been a hot toy every year, right? And it's always kind of the same. It's like, oh, this is the thing. You have to have this. And it's Tickle Me Elmo or Cabbage Patch Dolls or whatever it was out throughout history. It's all these things that were like the thing if you get it. For me, that toy was the Star Wars toy, the AT-AT or the ATAT, whatever you call it. There's a picture of it, the, the larger of the two there. And I asked for that thing, and it was so cool. You put batteries in that thing, and it has these guns on its little face, you know, and like, I don't know if you call it a face on a large mechanical thing, but, and the guns would go like this, and make a little noise, and they'd light up, you know, so if you did it in a dark room, they'd light up, and they'd blow things up or whatever. A super cool thing. And it's big. It's like the size of like a medium-sized dog. So it was like this, this large toy. Uh, and I begged my parents for that, and it was pretty expensive. My parents were like, oh, I don't know, you're really going to play with it, because I had all the other Star Wars figurines, and I would play with the toys or whatever. I was like, oh, I've got to have the Adat. It's so awesome. It is the thing. And, uh, and, and, and they bought it for me. Uh, it was so great. Six-year-old me rejoiced. Uh, they, they bought me the, the Adat, um, and I was happy for the rest of my life. Uh, so, so, no, actually, here's how that story ends. They bought me the Adat, and... Um, I played with it for a little bit, and then I got pretty tired of it and, because it's so big and it's kind of unwieldy. And my parents always look back on that as like the biggest waste of a purchase that they, they ever made in my childhood because it was like, it's dumb. You only played with it for a little bit, and then you stopped playing with it, and it just became a large thing that's in the way, and, uh, and you don't play with it enough. And, and, uh, and, and I guess that happened because I thought it was going to be amazing, and it just wasn't actually that amazing. Um, and maybe you've had that experience too. It may have been a toy. It may have been, I really want the thing, and then you got the thing, and you thought it was going to be like this awesome, but it was only like this awesome, and it just, it, over time, it was just kind of like, eh. Um, and it's not just toys, experiences, you know, you, you, you get the education, you think it's going to be great, and the education wasn't that great. You buy the car, you think it's going to be great, and it's not that great. You, you date the person that you think you're out of your league, and then you date them, and then you're like, this isn't actually that great. You get the house, it's just not actually that great. Like, all of these experiences, we think they're going to be incredible, and they're not. Um, there's a term for that that psychologists use. It's called impact bias. We have a bias towards believing things are going to make us happy and that they will, and the happiness will last longer than it ever does. They're never as good as we think, and it doesn't last as long as we think. You, you see that chocolate cake on the menu, and you go, this will make me very happy. Um, and you think it's going to be this good, and it's actually only this good. It's good, uh, but it's not as good as the thing you thought it was going to be. And it was like that the last time you ordered it as well. So you should, you should have figured that out by now. But the happiness doesn't last as long. There was a famous study on impact bias that happened, uh, connected to happiness, that happened in 1978 in Northwestern University. They did a study on uh, people who had won the lottery and then people who had been injured in an accident and became a paraplegic. And here's what they found out. A year later those two groups of people were about the same in their level of happiness. How can that be? How can some people who lose the function of all of their, their, their body or their limbs and stuff, how can they be as happy as people who had won the lottery? I mean, that's like the dream. They're gonna, all this money is going to be awesome. Um, a year later, their level of happiness is about the same. Maybe how that can be is, is this. We, we don't understand happiness very well. We don't know what actually makes us happy, and the things that we think will make us happy don't actually make us happy. Like, you could, you could 
go home today and make out a 10-year plan for your happiness and say, I want to do these things. These things will make me happy over the next 10 years. And I'm a big fan of making goals and, and dreams and having a vision for your life and going in that direction. That's all good. I'm just saying you could make a plan for your happiness and you'd probably be wrong. Like, the things you think will make you happy won't. Some of the detours that you take on your plan that you thought were going to be bad actually made you happy in some ways. Like, the, the, the path was not straight. It was kind of crooked. And, and, and you wouldn't even plan for some of the things that will make you most happy. And some of the things that you plan for will not make you happy at all. We started this series last week, and we're going to do it for six weeks, called The Pursuit of Happiness. And I want to get into this idea of, of happy. We kind of did more of a philosophical start last week. Uh, and, and I want to start today by talking about not happiness, but it, happiness is uh, not opposite, because that would be sadness. I don't want to do 30 minutes of sadness up here. But I, I want to give you happiness as like uh, odd cousin, I guess. Um, and this is something that we pursue instead of pursuing happiness. We think we're pursuing happiness when we pursue this other thing. And really, Wall Street and Madison Avenue and Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. all work together in various ways to sell us this other thing because you can sell it, uh, and happiness is much harder to sell. So they all work together to keep giving us this other thing as a substitute for happiness, and the more we consume it, the less happy we will become. So it's kind of a weird thing. Um, I'm, I'm talking about pleasure. Uh, it's similar to happiness, but not exactly the same thing. Uh, uh, Robert Lustig uh, lays all of this out in, in his book, The Hacking of the American Mind. And I, so I want to get into some of the science of this, and I am not a hard science background guy. Uh, I've got more of a theology background, uh, but I've read enough on this to be dangerous, okay? So uh, let, me, let me lay out to you, and I would say in layman's terms, but that's all I've got is layman's terms. I don't have the, uh, the super technical, but let me lay out to you some of the differences sort of scientifically between pleasure and happiness, and then we'll talk philosophically and biblically where those things are. And, and hopefully by observing this, we'll see some roads that we often walk down and some better roads to walk down. So number one, pleasure comes from the French word plaisir, and it means to please. The characteristics of pleasure are it's immediate. There's an there's a, a re, immediate reward. Number two, it provides some level of excitement or amusement. It's like, ooh. So it's like an espresso shot, okay? Pleasure is like, oh, isn't that great, you know? Uh, and it, it always makes me think of, did you ever play the game The Sims? Yeah, so you have that little guy or girl or whatever, and they're in your house, and you, like, have to make them live or whatever. And, you, and if you buy them an espresso machine, they would, like, sip it, and they'd be like, like that. I'm like, that's, okay. So that is, there's pleasure. It's like, woo, this is awesome, you know. Some level of excitement or amusement. And number three, it depends on circumstances. So it comes and goes. That's pleasure. Contrast that with uh, happiness. Happiness is related to an Arist Aristotle, one of his concepts, eudaimonia, which is more like contentment or flourishing. Um, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a deeper-seated thing. Uh, it's not prone to acute changes in one's life, and it's sort of unrelated to circumstances. So um, it's sort of this underlying, deeper thing uh, of happiness. Maybe another way to think of it this way is uh, pleasure is, um, is like chocolate, and happiness is Thanksgiving turkey. Um, I can eat Thanksgiving turkey and be done with it. Uh, I don't know that I can be done with chocolate when I have it. I'm always thinking I want more of it, which actually fits in really well. Pleasure, according to Lustig, pleasure says, I love this and I want more. Happiness says, I love this and I'm good. I'm good. Um, pleasure, maybe one way to think of it, pleasure is a yappy dog that wants a treat. 
And we all have this inside us. It's like, yes, yes, feed me. Ooh, ooh, you know, the tail starts wagging, right? That's pleasure. Happiness is the purring cat, right? Just like, oh, yeah, oh, this is where it's at. I'm, I'm, I'm good right here. Um, those things come from different uh, chemicals in, in the body, actually. Um, happiness is, comes out of serotonin, which is a chemical that gets built up in our body that how we experience happiness is related to serotonin. There's other chemicals involved, but to keep it simple, that's kind of the main one. Um, and, and pleasure comes out of a different chemical, and you've probably heard of this one before. Uh, it's called dopamine. It is a reward chemical. I, I want a treat. I get a treat. Uh, I get the instant gratification. That is dopamine. Uh, and, and dopamine is available all over our culture and is sold to us in various ways. Robert Lustig says it this way in the book. I'll put it up on the screen. Our society does not hurt from the inability to access reward. We've made it our highest priority. Now it's everywhere and ripe for the taking, and virtually nobody needs any extra strategies other than the ones they already possess to locate and access it. You need to go no further than social media, online porn, your drugstore, your liquor store, or your refrigerator. There are dopamine hits for us everywhere, and our society's organized towards this quest for consuming a ton of, of, of that kind of stuff. This is where our addictions come from. We get addicted to any of those things. You get addicted to, um, you know, things that you wouldn't even think you're uh, classic addiction. I mean, like uh, uh, social media. We can get addicted to social media, and it is designed that way. Um, if you're if you're on Twitter, one thing you, you notice notice this next time you log into your homepage on Twitter. When you pull up your homepage on Twitter, up at the top, it'll give you like uh, a, a, a number will come up with the notifications of um, like how many people have liked or retweeted your thing or whatever. But if you, as you log into your homepage, your page comes up, and then it'll pause for like two seconds, and then that number will pop up. Now, why can't that number pop up at the same time the page loads? Why does it have the page load and then the number pop up? That's on purpose. That is dopamine. They're doing this to you. They want to give you that little hit. Here's your page. What's, what's it going to be? Oh, look at that. I had 20 people retweet the article that I said I had read, but I never read, you know, or what, like, you know, 50 people liked, liked the thing, that the, the cool comment, snarky comment that I made. Um, that is dopamine, and it's done on purpose. They know what they're doing when they do this to you, okay? So social media, a, a big-time uh, a, a big dopamine hit. Alcohol does it too. You're feeling hungry, you're angry, you're lonely, you're, you're tired, and you want to numb that thing. Um, alcohol can give you that sort of dopamine hit to make you feel better in the short term about what all that stuff, any of those things. Uh, another, another huge one is pornography. Pornography is a drug. A lot of people would say, oh man, I would never do you know, hard drugs like heroin. Pornography, according to one book I read, said uh, pornography is heroin for the eyes. It's heroin that is being like injected into your eyes. It has similar effects on your brain. Uh, and and, and some, similar like that reward pathway. I see it. I want to go get it. I want to acquire it. I want to consume it. Uh, interesting one about pornography. I don't know if you remember this a couple months ago. It was in January. Do you remember when there was a, potentially a nuclear strike in Hawaii? Remember this? Um, it was in the news there for a bit. Uh, people in Hawaii thought that there was going to be a, a nuke attack. It was imminent. And so... That's, that's all interesting. It didn't happen. That's fine. But what came out later was a, a, one of the main porn websites in America published their statistics from Hawaii about porn usage around the time of this nuke attack. And it was super interesting. People thought there was a threat of a nuke attack for about 40 minutes. And during that 40 minutes, um, porn usage off this website from Hawaii plummeted. Like everybody got off the porn 
and started, I don't know, reaching out to friends, checking the news, making connections, saying goodbye, whatever it was. People got off of that. Um, And then 40 minutes later, when the threat was over and they realized there isn't a nuke attack happening for Hawaii, uh, porn usage skyrocketed on that website, like 70% up of over normal. What's going on there? Uh, We could probably think about that all day, and I'm not going to resolve it all for you. In fact, maybe you should think about it. Um, what is what is happening? Are we are we so um, are are we are we living in a way that that when something like that comes across and it's like oh this is a a, um, a bad thing uh, I'm going to die that that suddenly our priorities are realigned and we go you know I need to leave this junk alone I need to get into the real stuff relationships whatever and then were people like oh that felt terrible I thought I was going to die you know what would make me feel better right now and then. And then back to the drug of choice. Um, I, I think that's a lot of what was going on there, but I think it's, it's pretty fascinating what it says to us about our, our desires and, and, and how, we, how we feed those things. Um, we are wanting happiness. We're in a pursuit of happiness, but we are settling for pleasure. You can see this all over our culture, and my guess is if you think about it, you can probably see it in your own life. You feel pain, you reach for sugar. Sugar is all over our food, and it brings about some dopamine. Um, you feel hurt, you reach for alcohol because it makes it feel better in the short term. You have real problems, real pain, and you grab the quickest and easiest fix available. This is how people become all the thing that you would add a holic to. Alcoholic, shopaholic, internetaholic, chocoholic, sexaholic. If you're adding a holic to anything you're probably dealing with dopamine. You're probably dealing with this reward pathway of I've got to have it. Um, and hit after hit of this stuff, of this pleasure, is actually not making us happier. The more dopamine we pursue, the less serotonin we will be getting. And the overall long term, is it's gonna, there's going to be an emptiness that we feel because of that. And that's some of the scientific background. Let me give you some scripture on it, though, because the writers of the Bible were, were dialed into this thousands of years ago. Not in a scientific way, but just in an experiential, what is life like and, and what is it like when we pursue pleasure? And one of the people in the Bible that pursued pleasure, maybe more than anyone, is a guy named Solomon, who was king of Israel in about 950 BC. And he was king of Israel when things were good in Israel. Life was good, because a lot of Israel's history is they're getting like ransacked and, and oppressed and, and kind of owned by other nations, because they were a small country. But when Solomon was king, things were good. They were at their peak. Those were the good old days. And Solomon was extremely wealthy and a lot of experiences he could pull on. And he could kind of do whatever he wanted to do in life as a wealthy, super powerful guy. And he's a really good guy for us to look at because even though we live in a wealthy country, we're not wealthy enough to do everything we could ever think up doing. Solomon was. He was, he's a great experiment for us to look like. Like, how far does this go? What if you did everything you ever thought you wanted to do? Would we enjoy that? Would that be awesome? What would that be like? Well, Solomon tells us, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you may know Ecclesiastes, uh, even if you don't go to church, that, that song, the bird song from the 60s, a, a time to be born, a time to die. Like, that comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, but here he is in chapter 2. Listen to this. This is what Solomon says. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? 
I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So Solomon says, I'm going to put, my life, I'm going to put life to the test. And he does. Solomon parties so hard. And like any party you've been in is, is just small time compared to what Solomon was able to accomplish in his days. Solomon would have parties that they estimate 15 to 20,000 people were part of these parties that he would throw day after day. So that, that kegger you went to at Tech is nothing like what Solomon was able to pull off. Thousands of people, incredible experience. They are partying and living it up like no one else. They're just this massive thing because Solomon is so wealthy. He's, the, he's not the one percenter. He's the point zero 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 one percent of people in the world. And he's so wealthy, so powerful. He's able to try everything he wants to do. And he throws these massive parties. And eventually that kind of gets old, you know, like the pleasure of it, the, the dopamine hits, it gets old. He's tired of waking up in the bathtub. He's tired of, you know, just all the, this next great experience. It gets real old for him. And so he, he decides to go a different route and try something else out. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he goes down this like public works route and says, okay, I've, I've partied really hard and enjoyed all the pleasure of that. Now I'm going to like find what pleasure I get in like, you know, gardening. And he doesn't just go gardening. Like you've had a garden in your yard. He has entire forests. He has entire hanging gardens. He, he makes like large pools of water and is like, we're going to water this. We're going to do this. He's like cultivating the earth around and like making these massive things that he's doing. Right? So he, he's like, I'll, I'll try this. And he goes down that road for a little while and, and, and enjoys that. And then in verse 7, this, this gets weird. Look at this. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, like girlfriends. We'll get into that in a second. The delight of the children of man. All right. He's describing what is. Uh, understand now the Bible doesn't condone the things he's doing. He's, it just describes this is what's happening. So it's not saying slavery is great. He's saying, hey, this is what I did. I bought slaves, male and female slaves. I got slaves for my slaves. Like it was, I, what, I just owned people um, and did kind of whatever I wanted to with there. He's music. He's like, I got singers. It seems like a weird detail to us because we're so used to music on demand. But they didn't have Spotify, Right? So they didn't have iPods. They weren't like, oh, I'm just going to download this and listen to it later. Solomon walks into the club up in Jerusalem, and he's like, I like them. I'm going to own them. They're a good band. They're going to play at my palace tomorrow night. This is happening. And he would just buy musicians. He would buy people uh, and, and have slaves. I mean, he's doing everything he could think of. And then he gets concubines. Solomon famously, 700 wives and 300 concubines, like women on the side, because 700 wives is not enough. And so he was like, I need more. This is what... This is what the dopamine hits do to you. You go, man, how does the guy go, a thousand women? That's, how do you even, that's crazy. And he's like, oh, I'm just, keeps accumulating and accumulating and, and, and pursuing pleasure and keeps going down that road. He's just got these uninhibited uh, experiences, uninhibited music, uninhibited sexual experiences, uh, food, just whatever he wants, he's having it. And where does that end up? Verse nine, he says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. 
we'd all like to write our own reviews, wouldn't we? That's great. Yeah, I love that. He's just like, I, I'm, I was great writing it down. I just want you all for posterity's sake. I'm just going to write this down here. I became pretty great. Uh, I want you all to know that. So thousands of years ago, later, thousands of years later, you'll be talking about me. I was better than everybody who came before me. I was a big deal. And then uh, verse 10, he continues on. And whenever, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Pause for a second. Whatever he wanted, whatever he saw and said, I'm going to have it, he had it. Now, we can't do that. We don't live in that kind of world. We don't have that kind of money. We don't have that kind of time. We don't have that kind of control over people. You might think, I want whatever I want, and I want it now, um, but you can't do that. He, he could, so he can try it out for you and tell you how it is. And he says, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Solomon's like, I ain't going to lie to you guys, it was pretty fun. I got to do all this stuff, experience all these things, uninhibited. It was, we had some good times back there. And, and, and I want us to understand this pleasure is not inherently sinful. Dopamine is not inherently simple. It's not like a, a fault of the system. It's not like, God's not like, how did they get dopamine in their brains? I did not plan that. That is weird. No, it's, it's, it's there for a purpose. It's just the overindulgence of it that is so dangerous when we take it too far. And listen to how he concludes this section, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon says, I tried it all, and at the end of the day, it's just like trying to grab the wind. It's just meaningless. It's just empty. Dopamine hit after dopamine hit leaves you empty and feeling like you have no purpose and there's no meaning. And so if you feel that way, if you feel empty, aimless, meaningless, consider consider where you're pursuing pleasure. G.K. Chesterton, uh, writer, theologian from about 100 years ago, uh, journalist actually, he says, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. It's not the things that hurt that make you think there's no meaning. Sometimes that does happen. But he said, man, when you get everything you want, that's when you start feeling pretty empty. If you want to feel empty, then keep chasing the dopamine hits. But if you're interested in real happiness and flourishing, you're going to have to go down a different road. So let me ask you this today. When I talk about the pursuit of pleasure, do you know personally what I'm talking about? Are there things in your life that you would go right now, oh yeah, I, I do that. Oh yeah, I, I, I chase after that stuff. Oh, I can see ways that I've medicated pain or disappointment with a, a dopamine hit. What are you tempted to use to medicate your pain? And I guess the question to go along with that is, um, where are you tempted right now to not be honest about it? To say, oh, it's not really a problem. Oh, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. And all those things that we want to say. This is challenging to think about. It's challenging for me to think about as I write it. It's challenging to talk about it. Because I've seen areas in my life that I'm tempted. And I've seen areas in my life that I feel disappointment. And I've seen times in my life that I've reached for whatever drug of choice in order to medicate pain. Instead of taking it to God or 
learning a healthier way to handle stress or whatever. I've seen, I've seen ways that I've blown it in, over the years, and maybe you're feeling that too. So where do we go from here? Okay, if pleasure, if the increase of pleasure does not lead to more happiness, it actually, it's the opposite. Where do we go? Um, here's two options. Number one, you can leave here today and do nothing about what we just talked about here. You can walk out of here and you go, oh, that was interesting, the dopamine thing, serotonin, okay, pleasure, happiness. Oh, that's kind of cool. That, that Solomon story was a little bit interesting. And you can walk out of here and you can talk about it over lunch or you could think about it later and say, that was nice, and not do anything. And I'll tell you what not doing anything sounds like. If you find yourself saying these words, then there's a good chance you're not going to do anything with what, I just, what we've been talking about. If you find yourself saying, I probably should, and then you put something in the blank. I probably should drink less. I probably shouldn't look at that online anymore. I probably should play less video games. I probably shouldn't eat that anymore. I probably should is, what, is often what people say on the road to addiction that, led, that leads to death. It's something we say when we don't really want to change. It's not a commitment. It's just a statement. I just, oh, yeah, I probably should. And, and if you walk out of here and you go, oh, you know, I probably should, and that's where it stays for you, then uh, nothing will change. A week from now, five years from now, you'll still feel, feel a, a sense of meaninglessness. You'll still pursue pleasure. You'll, you'll, you'll go from one binge-worthy show to the next one. I mean, what is, what is a binge-worthy TV show if not a dopamine hit? delivered with an auto start at the end of the show on Netflix so it starts the next episode for you. I mean, they know what they're doing. You'll go from one dopamine hit to another, and it wouldn't surprise me if you don't want to change, that, that you'll still feel an emptiness, a, 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 just sort of a vague, this isn't working thing years from now. So that's option one. You can go down that road of I probably should and not change. And if nothing changes, then nothing changes. But let me give you a second option. This one's harder. This will take longer. This is going to go deeper inside you. Um, this is the kind of option that if you take it, you'll find out how deep the rabbit hole goes. Um, but if you take this option, um, I think this is where God will meet you and really do some incredible work in your life. And you can have a different story a week, five years, 20 years from now. It, it's this. Um, confess your sins and repent of them turn around and and walk away from them and turn back to God. Confess your sins and repent. Now that sounds old school church and all that. Um, I get that, but let's let's pull it apart a minute. Paul in a letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, wrote a letter to a younger pastor named Timothy and he talks about these sins that are going to be in our culture, uh, in their culture and this is in ours too. See how much of this you identify with. Listen to what he says. But understand this, this is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be, does it describe our culture at all? Listen to this. For people will be lovers of self. Hello, selfies. Uh, Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Man, I can't believe that made that list. (laughs) I'm like, is that a big deal? I guess it's a big deal. Disobedient. Kids, listen up. (laughs) Don't be disobedient to your parents. Ungrateful unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, and then this one, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, and 
Paul says, just avoid such people. And you could take this and go really judgmental. Yeah, those people over there, I should avoid them. Until you really look at the list and you go, oh no, I am those people. There's stuff in that list that describes me. Right? And when you look at that, you go, okay, then what do I need to do? I can't just avoid those people because I, I look in the mirror at one of those people. So what am I going to do? What Scripture teaches us is to repent. When Jesus shows up in the world, what does he lead with? What's his opening kind of teaching, his thought? I mean, because if you don't know anything about Jesus, our popular culture would tell you that what Jesus does when he shows up is says, you guys are awesome. I love you. God loves you. Let's hug it out. It's great. That's sort of the popular perception of Jesus is this sort of like sandal-wearing, robe-wearing hippie who's just like, you guys are awesome, a high five. He doesn't show up and say that. He doesn't show up and say, man, the Romans are oppressing us Jews. Sorry, guys, it's going to work out okay. God's got you back, you know, you're God's favorite. Look, I believe Jesus loves us. I believe God loves us, and he does teach that. But here's what he opens with in Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus' opening line is, let's get it straight here, guys. Repent, the Greek word metanoia. It's a change of mind. But it's deeper than just changing your mind. It's not like, I used to love watermelon Jolly Ranchers and now I love grape ones. It's deeper than that. It's a change in the inner man is kind of what that word means, or the inner woman, right? It's this idea that you are moving in a different direction. It's, it's I was walking this way and I'm turning 180 degrees around and I'm going to walk this way. This is what Jesus' opening message is towards us. Jesus shows up and he says, think and walk differently. Now, you probably can think of something just in what we've been talking about this morning that you could repent of. You probably think of something, you go, I'm walking down this road and I need to walk um, a, a different direction. Um, but in order to do that, there's going to need to be this other piece. Um, my experience has been that we have a hard time repenting because we're unwilling to even name the things that we're doing. Like if, if you said, I probably should be a little more honest, that's not much of a commitment, right? It's not, you're not owning a lot there, except that you're a little less honest than you should be, you think should, right? But if you said, I'm a liar, that's different, right? That, that, that has some weight to it. Even to say that out loud, you're like, ooh, I don't like that. And that's where confession and repentance comes in, is when you say the thing out loud. Not I probably should, but I am this, and, 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 I, want, and I want to be different. I want to walk a different road. 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the good news. You speak it out loud and say, I am this, and I've blown it here. And you, you confess to a friend. I've got a, I've got a friend in, in Fredericksburg I confess with. Um, you say it to a trusted friend that is like, hey, uh, this is where I'm at. And, and if you do that, if you confess, if you speak it up, if you name the thing, it gets very real when you say it. And when it gets real, God begins to go to work and heal you and change you and start taking you down a different road. God takes the crooked path that you've been on and, and actually can make it, make it straight. 
So, first off today, let's, let's acknowledge the cheap substitutes of pleasure that we've been chasing that aren't going to bring us happiness. They're not all bad, but the over-pursuit of them, many of them, is, is killing us and actually making us um, unhappy. Let's confess those things to a trusted friend this week. Don't wait till two weeks from now when you've forgotten that we even had this talk. Like, con- find someone this week and say, I've got to confess some things. And just lay it out. And repent and say, look, I'm going to walk a different road and I'm going to get on a different track. Now, what road you're going to walk down, a road that would lead to happiness, um, that's what we'll start talking about next week. There's four different things that I want to hit in the next four weeks uh, that I think if we start walking down that road um, and, and do the things God has called us to do, that there's happiness to be found at the end of that. So let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is heavy stuff, and there are things that we can all feel uncomfortable with in, in this in this talk. And so God, I, I pray you help us to identify and that you shine a light on the things that we're over pursuing, that the ways we're pursuing pleasure when we ought to be pursuing um, a, a relationship with you that can lead to happiness. Um, God, speak to us, help us to repent of those things and, and turn and, and walk in a different direction. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.